welcome to Nerds at Church, a podcast about nerdery and the Bible. I'm Pastor Kay, and I use pronouns like she and her. And I'm Pastor Emily, and my pronouns are they, them, theirs. In this episode, we'll discuss the fifth Sunday after Pentecost, also known as Lectionary 13 or Proper 8, which this year falls on July 2nd. We have one content notification for this episode, and that is that we talk about how obedience has been misused by the church when we are discussing the deep dive. Check out the episode description for links to the Bible passages and other references we make in this episode. Our deep dive for this episode draws on our Romans reading, and we are diving deep into obedience. Apparently, this time after Pentecost is our time for words that are more complicated than they might seem at face value. Yes. So, obedience, what we're talking about for obedience is not necessarily obeying the law. Right. And not necessarily not obeying the law. This is not a D&D alignment conversation. It's true. But I think it's helpful to use the Firefly game, but also the show. And that's our reality, too. The law is not necessarily moral. The law is made by people in power. And we know that based on a lot of the laws happening today. So the Serenity crew in Firefly are moral. And so they act in obedience to their morals, but oftentimes not in obedience to the law. Yes. So when we talk about obedience, we're mostly talking about obedience to God. Mm -hmm. And so we started off by, I did a word search of the Bible, not, you know, one of those where you go around through the mess of letters and circle the different words that not that kind of word search. (laughs) I searched the NRSV for the words obedient and obedience and came up with a list and tracked those back to what Greek or Hebrew words they were based on. And the vast majority of hits that I got for the word obedience or obedient were in the New Testament. There were just a handful of examples from the Hebrew scriptures, but mm-hmm. we'll talk a little bit more about the two most common words that were used to mean obedience in the Bible. Mm-hmm. So the most common Hebrew word, if you're a linguistics nerd, it's strong Reference number is 8085. If you're a Hebrew nerd, you probably know this word. It is Shema. And that means hear, listen to, obey, understand, examine, kind of like a judge. And that is really well known because the most well-known verse in Hebrew scripture, and we're not talking about from a Christian perspective, is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, which is Shema Yisrael. Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, which it means here, Israel, the everlasting, our God, the everlasting is one. Or the, or the everlasting is God, the everlasting is one. Is is don't show up in Hebrew. So that's right. a little tricky on the translation. But I do think it's interesting that in Hebrew scripture, Shema is the word that is most associated with obedience and obedient because it is very much about hearing, right? About receiving the words of God and the instructions of God, which I don't know, it just, it feels different than just like obey, right? There's an expectation of like, let it sink into you. Yeah. Right. Embody. That's sort of a thing. And when the Hebrew scriptures reference the concept of obedience, it's usually about being obedient to God. Generally, it's a communal kind of obedience in nature, which is to say it's the people of God or the Israelites being obedient to God, not just a single. Mm -hmm. 
And then the most common Greek word for obedience, the strong reference is number 5218, and it is hupakon. I am less confident in my Greek pronunciation, and it means obedience. It's similar to the word that's right next to it alphabetically, but it's kind of like answering a door knock or listening to a complainant. It was a complainant as in someone bringing a legal problem to you as a judge. Someone who is saying, hey, my neighbor stole my cow. That kind of Gotcha. Okay, so there are some connections between the Hebrew and the Greek, right? With the, like, space of a judge and yeah. legal system. Most of the New Testament references to obedience are also about us being obedient to God or faith. And mostly these are in the epistles that are written or directed to communities of faith. So generally speaking, these are also collective instructions. You know, y'all be obedient is how we might less formally translate them, mm-hmm. despite the fact that it yeah. it comes out as you in English. The interesting twist mm-hmm. on this, for me at least, is that while the Hebrew scripture references to obedience make it pretty clear that these are communal instructions to, you know, the people of God or to the Israelites, it's a lot easier to accidentally translate these as individual instructions to you personally, the person who is reading this letter in the Greek Bibles. And yeah. there are one or two exceptions to that. Yeah. And so that's one of the tricky parts about Christianity is that since we stopped differentiating between you plural and you singular as part of what is considered standard English, which I use air quotes for because there's a lot of white supremacy that goes into like what's considered standard and not. But when we take that out, that makes us more likely to default to a more individualistic faith. But particularly in the United States with how individualistic the dominant culture is anyway, it gets really dangerous. And like, there are a lot of people who use the first Corinthians passage about love at weddings, right? And yeah, don't that's not realize what talking about. No. that the love that's being talked about is a communal love. And so when there is one epistle, one letter that is decidedly written to one person, Yes. And that's the book of Philemon. It's nice and short. You can read it in about five minutes. Yeah, it's super short. It's like a one pager. The rest are written, for the most part, to communities of faith or to mainly one person, but also a couple others. And other people are greeted in this letter to Philemon, but the letter is to Philemon. And what I think is interesting is that that is one of the letters where you actually get the word obedient. And where Paul is extolling Philemon to be obedient. And Philemon is a slave owner, right? His slave, Onesimus, has run away. And Paul is sending Onesimus back and appealing to Philemon basically to be like, let Onesimus go. Doing the peer pressure thing of be a good Christian, be a good follower of Christ. Using his powers Be obedient. Yeah. Be obedient to your faith. And let Onesimus be free and help me while I'm in prison. Yeah. There are also a couple of references to Jesus being obedient, like specifically by going to the cross, being obedient to God's will. And one reference that I find kind of hilarious where Jesus is spoken about being obedient to his parents after he was found by them after he ran away to the temple when he was 12 years old, (laughs) which I love that so much. So, yeah. You know, he had his, like, preteen rebellion and then was like, okay, now I'll be obedient. By going to the synagogue. <laughs> yeah, that, that is absolutely the, yeah. Like you do. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, we're pastors. We don't really get to dunk on him for that, so that's That's fair. true. 
So what about Bible stories that involve the concept of obedience? Well, before we get to Bible stories, there is a video that you can certainly watch on YouTube called Why Humans Can't Obey the Law and God's Plan to Fix It. This is from the Bible Project, which I believe we've mentioned before. But for those of you who are not familiar with it, Yes, this is a project about the Bible to make videos to explain various more complicated, generally, concepts about the Bible. They do a few 101 videos, but these are mostly for adults who are looking to get into some of the larger themes that are harder to explore in, say, a single church service. And Mm. by and large, they have pretty good quality content, as long as you keep in mind that these videos are apparently, for the most part, made by two white guys. And so they don't have a huge amount of cultural breadth in their background, but they make an effort. They usually do a good job. When we talk about obedience, I like to keep in mind that God does not actually expect us to be good at this. (laughs) And that is found throughout the Bible, as we'll see in just a minute. But many of us are brought up on some Bible stories about obedience. Sometimes these are used to teach children to be obedient to authority figures. One of the ones I remember hearing about in Sunday school was Noah building the ark in Genesis chapters 6 through 9 and putting up with Mm -hmm. being made fun of by all of his neighbors while building the ark. And then, of course, you know, it turns out he was right. And then they get theirs. Yeah, we did not usually (laughs) emphasize the whole, you know, and then all his neighbors died in the flood part. But Uh yeah, that was a thing. And then there's the very complicated and difficult story of Abraham almost sacrificing his son Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. This is Abraham being obedient to God. And also, like, Abraham actually doesn't sacrifice Isaac. That's good. Mm -hmm. But he was pretty clearly ready to for a minute there. And I cannot speak as eloquently on this story as some other people can, but I know that Rabbi Daniel Rutenberg has done a column on it that I've found very helpful for unpacking the background to this story. Yeah, and we'll try to find that and link to it in our episode description. Also, one of the examples of obedience that I really love is from the first chapter of Exodus, and it's Shifra and Pua, who are two midwives. And they are not the only ones who are obedient, but they are the named ones who are obedient. But in this time, Pharaoh has decided that the Hebrew people are just getting too populous and they're enslaved in Egypt. And Pharaoh wants to make sure that like power remains with the Egyptians and not with the Hebrew people and doesn't want the Hebrew people to continue to grow. And so orders all of the midwives to kill the baby boys. And Shifra and Pua don't. Right. And this is, for me, a beautiful example of obedience, not to the law, which would be Pharaoh's word, but to God, knowing that God does not and would not want to kill all the newborn baby boys. They don't. And they lie to Pharaoh and to the Egyptian authorities and say, oh, they just give birth really fast before we get there. Sure. And it says that they feared God, so they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. Cool. But they let the boys live. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> also, one of the interesting spaces of obedience is during the Deuteronomistic reforms, which we just talked some about that when we were talking about Jeremiah and our episode on Jeremiah. But the Deuteronomistic reforms were a time of bringing people back into 
and reminding them of the promises and the covenant that they share with God and what it means to be faithful or obedient to that covenant. And so you get a lot of reforms and a lot of like reinterpretation of scripture in Deuteronomy in particular, but also in other areas of scripture like Jeremiah and what Jeremiah says. So I think that's an interesting space of obedience. And like, what does that mean in a collective sense, especially when a community has gone astray? Sure. So another story about obedience to, you might say, God, I suppose, this one's a little complicated again, is the story (laughs) of Jephthah's daughter. And this is found in Judges chapter 12. Jephthah is a judge of Israel, and he was going to lead an army into battle. And being a judge in Israel wasn't just about being a judge like we think about it today. It it also meant you were a leader. And so being a military leader wasn't completely unusual for that. And because he was going to lead an army into battle, he promised God that he would sacrifice whatever first came through the door of his house when he got home if they won. And then they won. And then he got home. Mm -hmm. And then the first thing to come through the door of his house to come out to greet him when he got home was not a thing, but a person. It was his beloved only daughter. And he immediately regretted the promise that he made to God. And Mm -hmm. then he carried through on it after allowing her a time to grieve. He explained what had happened to her and she agreed to it. And then she took some time to grieve. And I believe that passage is actually like weirdly specific that she was grieving that she would die a virgin. (laughs) And then he sacrifices her and is very sad. Also, like, what did you think was going to happen? Who did you think was going to walk through that door? Yeah. I mean, possibly like a dog or something. I don't know. But also, I'm unclear on whether he actually still, like, had a wife or if his wife had already died by this point. So, like, his Mm. daughter was maybe not the only option, but also not, you know, the only terrible option for this. (laughs) Anyway. And the thing is, is God never actually, like, shows up and says, yes, Jephthah, you must follow through on your promise. I insist on it. Mm-hmm. God never said anything about this. God does not yeah. talk in this story. It's not nearly as clear as with the binding of Isaac and right. Abraham's instructions. And yet Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, commends Jephthah for his faith and for carrying through on this promise. So like, I don't know, but I personally like to think that God was pretty pissed off about this and had a few words for Jephthah when Jephthah died. So, mm-hmm. yeah an entire book that has to do with obedience is the book of Esther. And that has to do with both just and unjust laws and the navigation, particularly as a minority community, and then a community who is under threat and following and obeying, but also trying to create and hold space for ways to challenge and to also like point out the harm that is being caused because the king doesn't realize what harm is being done and what exactly the things that he's signing are going to do to people in his... Because it's kind of difficult to pay attention to any of that if you're getting drunk at banquets every night, you know. Also that. (laughs) Yeah. And then in 2 Kings, we have the story of King Hezekiah ending Israel's time of idolatry and presumably also resuming temple worship of God and insisting on Israel being a monotheistic again. This is not the first or the last time that one of the kings of Israel would do this. This happens Mm -hmm. again and again and again and will happen again after the Babylonian exile. And that's Ezra and Nehemiah. And so again, 
God doesn't really expect us to be good at this. We just keep trying. Truth. During the exile Mm -hmm. is where we get the story from Daniel of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refuse to bow down to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar in a very satirical, over-the-top account. Yes. And they refuse, and they refuse, and they refuse, and then eventually it gets to the point where Nebuchadnezzar orders the fires to be extra, extra hot, and they are thrown into the fire. The people who throw them into the fire get burned up, and yet Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are partying with some mysterious fourth being who is not in Jesus. the fires unharmed who is definitely not jesus so that's another one of like obedience and they say like even if god had not saved and rescued us we would have still done this because it's not about whether or not we survive it's about obedience and faith to god yeah so, and i like that perspective because we're not guaranteed safety no just because we're obedient as the Bible tells us again and again. Mm -hmm. And then as we shift into the New Testament, we get in the beginning of Luke, Mary at the Annunciation and an angel coming to Mary and saying, hey, you want to have a kid with God? And Mary's (laughs) like, how does that work? And the angel's like, the spirit of God will come upon you. And then Mary's like, okay, sure. (laughs) This is my interpretation of it, in case you were not clear about the storytelling. Yeah, that, that was not an exact quote. None of it yeah, was not an, an exact, exact quote of anything. Yeah. But there, there is, in this story, complexity. Like, there are questions of consent. And so, for me, it does feel like Mary is consenting to this and yeah. not forced into this. Mary was a really common name. I imagine there were tons of Marys running around at the time. And I imagine, <laughs> like, the angel could have gone to, like, five other Marys first and been like, hey, you want to have a kid with God? (laughs) And they'd be like, no, thank you. And the angel would be like, okay, and goes to the next one. And maybe even some Ruths or some Esters or some, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's a little bit of headcanon, but I think it's the helpful space that like obedience, when we're talking about obedience as a gift, as an expression of faith, that sort of thing, it's not because it is required, demanded, or forced, it is because it is a choice. And it is because we keep trying to do our best to be obedient, to be faithful. Yeah, absolutely. Also, we have the story of John the Baptist, and particularly how his life story ended in Matthew chapter 14. As an example of obedience to God, John the Baptist spoke truth to power by telling Herod that his marriage and choices were not according to what God intended. And Herod had him locked up. And then there was, you know, an incident that totally wasn't Herod's fault. Oops. That led to John the Baptist getting beheaded as one does in somebody's basement dungeon, I guess. And basically, John the Baptist knew when he told Herod that what he was doing was wrong, that it might end badly for him. And yet he still did it. And as far as we can tell, he did not regret that because he had a chance to send a message to Jesus from prison and the message did not include any regret whatsoever. And this example is perhaps a little more complicated, but Another example of obedience to God is Jesus, particularly in the Garden of Gethsemane and also on his way to the cross and on the cross. Now, the idea of Jesus being obedient to God when Jesus also is God 
I admit is a little weird, but <laughs> Jesus was also fully human. And we do have the story of him in Luke chapter 22, asking God in the garden to have this cup passed from it, if that's possible. And so, yes, it really does seem that he was being obedient to something he didn't really want to do on his own, but he would do if that's what was necessary. And then he realized it was. Yeah. Another, you know, lovely and complicated story of obedience is the story of Saul, who we know as Paul, who became Paul. And I think that Paul's story is particularly interesting because at the beginning of Acts, Paul really thinks he's obeying God as he persecutes followers of Christ, as he witnesses the stoning and the martyrdom of Stephen, the first martyr. He really thinks he's being obedient and faithful. And it's not until Jesus interrupts his walk to Damascus that he is confronted with what he has done. And I think you mentioned this maybe last week, that it's interesting to think back through the epistles that are written by Paul, especially in the ones that we know are Pauline, like Romans, and think about them from the context of someone who, it's not just that he like messed up, it's that he was a huge part of the death and torture of a lot of people. And so that's the space that gets dangerous of like when we rely on our own interpretation and only our own interpretation, it's going to be more complicated when it comes to following God and being obedient to God because it's a lot easier for us to cause harm in the name of obedience without actually following the actual will of God. Yeah. So I know that our listeners have high standards for us, and a lot of you are probably asking yourselves right now, you know, Emily, Kay, you guys have listed a lot of great examples of people obeying God, even when it's difficult, but surely there are some negative examples of people not obeying God in the Bible, right? And oh boy, are you right. Yes, there are lots of those. There are actually way too many of them to list. And honestly, today Mm -hmm. we're highlighting the point of obedience rather than disobedience, so we're not going to go too in-depth into these, but personally speaking, I have to say my favorite example of someone disobeying God in the Bible is the story of Jonah or how to be the worst (laughs) prophet you could ever be in the history of the world. Uh, Because Jonah is given very specific instructions, including practically being given like directions on how to get there of where he's supposed to go and what he's supposed to do when he gets there. And instead he runs the exact opposite direction towards Tarshish and winds up, you know, in the belly of a great sea beast that is totally not a whale. And, (laughs) you know, I'm not saying that if you disobey God, that you will end up in the belly of a great sea beast that is totally not a whale, but like clearly that is one of the options on the table. So maybe (laughs) don't go that direction. Or another option that also shows up in this story is when he goes to Nineveh, they have not been doing what God wants either. And they repent and suddenly, all of their chickens have ashes on their foreheads and are running around in burlap. So like, again, (laughs) things you don't want, weird things done to your livestock. So (laughs) this is a lovely example of why obeying God is usually a better idea than disobeying. Yeah, I was going to say, it's also a great example of at any point, Jonah could have changed his mind. Yes. And he might not have ended up in the belly of a giant sea beast. But sometimes you decide that you would rather have your shipmates throw you overboard into the water during a giant storm rather than obey God. And like, you know, we're stubborn that way. I can understand that. It's true. It's true. Another example that is a complicated example, because 
so many of ours are complicated. Because the Bible is complicated. Exactly. Because humans are complicated. Yeah. Is the story of Lot's wife. Lot and his family are told by the angels to flee from Sodom. And if you want more about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, check out our episode where we did a deep dive into it. We'll link to that. We're not getting into the particulars of that because it's really important and would take its own episode, which is why we already did it as an episode. But Lot's wife, they're told to run and not look back. And Lot's wife looks back and turns into a pillar of salt. And there's a lot of interpretations of this. Like there's the, she was overcome with grief and could not continue because this is a community that they have lived in and raised their kids in. And yeah. So it's not just like an abstract town that is being destroyed. It is their community and their friends. And so it makes sense for her to be distraught. And maybe that's the pillar of tears or maybe the pillar of salt. Or maybe she actually turns into a physical pillar of salt. We're not sure. But that would be an example of not obeying God. And then also the second creation account in Genesis where Adam and Eve and the snake all have some complicated things going on. I just heard a great podcast about it that friend of the podcast River Needham was on and so we'll link to that if you want to dig more into the story and the complexities but there is a sense of God not being obeyed. There's also a sense of bad communication and so it's an interesting story because there is this like assumption of disobedience and kind of an assumption of like intentional disobedience on the part of Eve who maybe never even like heard it directly from God not to eat this particular tree. Right. The same blame is not given to Adam, who by all accounts is right there with her, standing, watching, listening to the conversation, doesn't say a thing, automatically takes the food that he's given by Eve. What I think is interesting is that the the consequences come not necessarily from the disobedience itself, but from the blaming of other people, not taking responsibility for their actions. Yeah. So I think like there's just so much complicated in that and some of it is and it is about obedience and disobedience, but also is not. It's about yeah. other stuff too. Just like our lives are about obedience and other things. But yeah, the episode that we'll link to is definitely worth a listen. It is fantastic. River is one theological perspective for it. And then there's a rabbi, Rabbi Rubin, I believe, is the other theological perspective. And so it's just like a fantastic conversation facilitated between the two of them. Also, this is not a biblical reference, but as Lutherans, Emily and I are part of a tradition that holds hymns in fairly high regard. We're very fond of our music. We do also occasionally like, you know, the occasional worship song or something, but we are pretty big on our hymnody as a denomination on the whole. And one of the first things that popped into my head when we started talking about doing a deep dive on obedience is the hymn Trust and Obey which you may or may not be familiar with, the refrain goes, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. 
Now, I admit I have not used this a lot in a congregational setting. I have occasionally used it at a nursing home service when I usually have a far more restricted list of available hymns to use. And to be entirely honest with you, the refrain kind of ruins it for me with this <laughs> hymn because it comes off as rather trite. I have heard some folks, particularly elderly folks who grew up with this tune, speak about this hymn in moving and useful ways, particularly when it comes to obeying God even if it's difficult. And I admit that the verses of the hymn actually have some nice depths to them, but sadly, because of the refrain, a lot of that depth kind of gets lost. And also the refrain is the part of the song that gets stuck in your head, or at least it does for me. So I have my issues with this hymn, but it is fairly iconic. And also, like I said, the verses have some useful depth to them. Also, that is not the only hymn that talks about something like obedience, believe it or not. Oddly enough. I don't know, weird. It's almost like for a long time, Christianity was focused on maybe not the best things. Yeah. There are some hymnals that both Kay and I have used that have a category of obedience or obey in them. So you can find a bunch of songs that are thematic that way, which is a theological statement. Anybody that says that hymns are like non-theological oh, gracious. or can be non-denominational or like not theological, they're wrong and they're lying to you. Yeah, There is so much theology in hymns and hymn selection and translation and interpretation and versions and all of that stuff. Yes. The closest thing to a hymn without theology or a, you know, agenda, you might say, or a theme that I have ever experienced was a praise chorus that was literally just the name Jesus repeated several dozen times, which did, yes, <laughs> actually happen. But like that, technically speaking, as long as you're in a Christian church, technically any Christian church could sing that. A lot of us wouldn't, but you could. Mm -hmm. So that, I suppose, yeah. is non-denominational. But otherwise, if there you have you more than one word in your song, then yes, there's theology there. Mm -hmm. And the main hymnal that Kay and I use as Lutherans, the Evangelical Lutheran Worship, ELW, which is cranberry colored because <laughs> we use fancy names and already had a red hymnal. Yeah. Does not have obey or obedience in it, but it does have other categories that kind of fit that theme. There's one category that is commitment or discipleship. There's another category that is trust or guidance and another category that is cross bearing. Yeah. That last one is the one that's kind of the funniest to me, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I so don't think most of those are about Jesus bearing the cross. I think those are about us. But. No, yeah, they're about us bearing the cross. And we'll get more into that in about 30 seconds, maybe. Sure. But yeah, it's an interesting category to have. I would be curious if our listeners have, like, what categories stick out to them in their hymnals that they might use, both in terms of do you have one that is obey or obedience and or favorite hymns in that category, if you do, yeah. or do you have other, like, roundabout ways of talking about this that are maybe a little bit more nuanced and complex, like the ELW. So biblical obedience and the concepts of obedience found in the Bible and mentioned in the Bible, unsurprisingly, were misused a whole bunch throughout history. One of the main ones is bear your cross. You have a cross to bear. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. That one of the main ways that that has been used to harm is through people being encouraged to stay in abusive relationships, particularly by their clergy. Yeah. That's wrong. 
Yes. God's will is not for you to stay in an abusive relationship or an abusive situation. That is not God's will. Obedience to God's will means liberation, means caring for others and each other. It means a whole lot of things, but it does not mean willingly being abused right. for no reason. Like, because someone's abusive. Yeah, no. Another way that biblical obedience was misused is in slavery, particularly when we think about chattel slavery here in the United States. The Bible was frequently used, and Paul's epistles, which have the most, well, not all Paul's. Some of them are not actually from Paul. Paul-ish. Yeah, Paul's fanboys talk a lot about obedience, (laughs) and so they were used a lot and misused to justify and support slavery and the enslavement of people of African descent and the kidnapping of people from the continent of Africa. And especially like the irony of Philemon, which is written to someone who has enslaved another person and is an appeal for that slave to be freed, was used to justify slavery because the writing is a different type of writing. Yeah. And so Paul is using persuasive, pure pressure to try to free Onesimus. And when it's read back and just kind of read, it sounds like slavery is fine, but just like this one slave yeah. is who I want. And that's not what Paul is saying, but that's a misinterpretation of the situation and what Paul is actually doing rhetorically. Yeah. Another example of obedience being misused, again, particularly in Christian settings and by Christian clergy, is to infuse a certain amount of cult-like attitudes into the Christian faith, particularly the concept of thou shalt not question, Mm. especially thou shalt not question authority figures and what they tell you. And that has been a problem and continues to be a problem in many Christian groups and churches. And biblical obedience is, again, like we said, almost always, 99% of the time, about obedience to God. Very occasionally, it's someone happens to be obedient to their parents or to someone else. But 99% Mm -hmm. of the time, it's about being obedient to God. Don't treat people like God. Like, actually, the Bible's very big on that point. And so when you treat people like God, when you start obeying people the way you obey God, that's when bad things happen. Mm -hmm. And especially because like literally the last two Sundays we've had Jesus talking about divisiveness and like families turning against each other and children turning against parents. And if that is what we're doing, then that's not obedience to parents at all costs. Right, exactly. And another way that this comes out is something that I can't help but refer to in terms of a meme from like the 2000s, which involved a unicorn, which was known (laughs) as shun, shun them, shun the non-believer. And (laughs) shunning the non-believer is actually a thing that, you know, Christians have done in the name of biblical obedience, which again is not actually, generally speaking, what God is instructing us to do. Like there are certain situations where, yes, you do have to separate yourself from someone, particularly, again, Mm -hmm. if you're being abused. Safety is important. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, demanding that, you know, the members of a certain church don't associate with the members of that other church. Like, that's not what God was going for. God sent us out into the world Mm -hmm. to talk to people. Like, that's not how this is supposed to work. So shunning is another example of how that's been misused throughout history. Yeah. 
And we are nerds at church, so of course we have to talk about some pop culture references. We have a couple for you. And the first thing that popped into my head as I was thinking about when do we talk about obedience in pop culture is, of course, the musical Hamilton. There are a mm -hmm. few songs that are done as though they were letters between people, and the common sign-off for a letter that was used very often back then, your obedient servant, when we might say, you know, yours, or something like that mm -hmm. instead, shows up frequently during the musical, and in fact there's actually a song called that, Your Obedient Servant. And the mood of the way that people say your obedience mm -hmm. servant varies widely between people being friendly to each other, people being kind of obsequious to each other, or a very clear invitation to go screw yourself, depending <laughs> on, you know, the mood of the person writing the letter. And it is delightfully clear and obvious, despite using the exact same words every time. Mm -hmm. Also, friend of the podcast, Lenny Duncan uses that in one of their books. Oh, yeah. I can't remember if I think it's Dear Church and on might be their blog on a fairly regular basis I think yeah. yeah which I think is a great use of that particular absolutely it also very yeah. much reminds me of my very short time working retail when I spent a year working at a clothing store and learned to call people sir or ma'am either out of genuine respect and kindness which happened occasionally or out of just absolute <laughs> unspeakable anger and I couldn't do anything else but call them that and you know it totally did not come through in my voice but man I was feeling it at the time so yeah which is like less great now because you know they're so gendered but yeah well yeah. the like honorific used <laughs> that's like or now like less. han solo calling leia your worshipfulness <laughs> <laughs> yes I love that. And we did also mention a couple pop culture references throughout with like Firefly and those sorts oh, of sure. things. The other space that I think about when I think about obedience is civil disobedience, which is, as we've talked about, it's what Shifra and Pua do. It is obedience to a higher value or a higher call. And a lot of that is connected to, depending on who you are, Piaget or Kohlberg's six stages of moral development that are thought to be like as a person develops. You sure. might not get through all of them, but you, they build on each other. And so there's like, it's okay to do if you don't get caught is like the basic level. But then it progresses to if it feels good, do it or do it for someone else you care about or do it because it's your duty. And that's like more the law obey type of thing. And then it's the consensus of thoughtful men. I'm using the word men because they use the word men. And I think it points to like where you're trusting other people to have made a decision. And that's a lot of people, I think, who get confused about legality and morality tend to think laws are made by a consensus of thoughtful men. Yes. And therefore don't realize how much the patriarchy is baked. Mm -hmm. and, and how much of just like, really complicated and harmful power abuse yeah. is inherent in the laws that are made. But then there's like the like sixth stage, which is kind of the like stage that not everybody gets to, but that presumably Jesus and some others have reached this level is what if everybody did that, right? Which looks towards universal ethical principles, right? So the idea of cherishing love or quality of life or ideals around like 
what every person deserves and how every person deserves to be treated and those sorts of things. And so that's the place most where obedience to that can lead to disobedience to the law in segregation, in bus boycotts, in helping people access abortion and trans healthcare, like yeah. all of those things, the abortion boat. There's an abortion boat that camps in international waters and comes really close to the shore. And then like, sometimes they drop by a drone and sometimes they like bring people on board via smaller boats who need access to abortion and yeah. are in places that don't give them access. And then this last reference, I don't really know if this counts as pop culture. It certainly counts as like the, the <laughs> real world after the Bible. Culture. But I was doing a little reading on Julian of Norwich recently, and apparently you're not supposed to pronounce the W in Norwich. I didn't know that before. Huh. Yeah, it's a British thing, I guess. But in both Europe and England for a few hundred years during sort of the medieval stage, there were people called anchorites who instead of being called to a community of monks or nuns, which you usually had to pay a fairly decent amount of money to enter, like for women to become a nun, you usually paid in your dowry to the convent. But these people, instead of entering a community like that, were called to a specific place or church and were given what was called an anchor, a small cell, which they then would enter and not leave again until they died as a religious observance. They stayed in the cell, they prayed a lot. If they were literate and most of them were. They would read the Bible and sometimes they would write things. Many of these folks were in a anchor that was attached to a church sanctuary so that the anchorite could attend the service through a window, not leaving their anchor, but they would open a window to follow along with the service and then they could also receive communion there. And this was an interesting option for folks because you didn't have to take religious vows. Technically speaking, you stayed a layperson. Although... Since you had to stay in the cell on your own, being celibate was actually part of the deal. But it wasn't exactly a vow. The vow was to stay in the anchor and to be alone, be the only person. Basically, you had to have the right kind of reputation or seem to be the right kind of person for this in order to have the church or the local person overseeing that anchor agree to let you become an anchorite. And anchorites were quite often treated pretty much like prophets or like, you know, wise people. Hmm to refer to when you're trying to make a big decision. Mm -hmm. They often were not really under the leadership of any one person in the hierarchy. Like they didn't even really have to answer to their local bishop very often, as long as they stayed in mm -hmm. their cell. If they left their cell, that was a whole different universe of problems. But as long as they stayed in the anchor, they had a lot of freedom to say what they wanted. And a lot of them also wrote works that we still have today. And Julian of Norwich, who is a very well-known from this time, was one example of an hmm. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say there are different religious orders who do have obedience as part of their religious order. Right. But this is a, an interesting alternative that I was not familiar with. There was apparently yeah, a movie about an anchorite made that is actually called Anchorite, I think, that based on the summary I read, I don't believe that it may have been super historically accurate. They were definitely going for a bit of sensationalism with that. But mm. it's an interesting concept I had not run into before and seemed to be a welcome alternative for folks who couldn't afford to enter a religious community. Yeah. 
Our first reading for today is from Jeremiah chapter 28, verses 5 through 9. The prophet Jeremiah and another prophet named Hananiah disagree on what the future of Israel holds. Will there be war, famine, and pestilence, or will there be peace? The results will demonstrate who is actually prophesying God's word. I think a better way to solve this would be with an epic rap battle Bible edition. <laughs> But this is Jeremiah and not Jesus. Like, Jesus would absolutely win one of those because he was a smart aleck. But Jeremiah was really mm -hmm. much more the, you know, yelling and being sad type, as we discussed at length last week. I know, but this is like a, an opportunity for Jeremiah to, like, stretch out of his comfort zone, let God flow through him. Sure. Like, I think it would be hilarious, really. And now I want Epic Rap Battles to do a Bible edition. Yes, absolutely. I think my biblical Hebrew would have to be a lot better than it is. I mean, fair. They have done, like, some other epic rap battles with, like, Martin Luther and stuff, I think, before. Cool. But, yeah. I just, like, I read that and I was just like, this is basically, <laughs> like, the epic rap battle before those were, like, millennia before those were ever a thing. Yeah. As for the verses themselves, in verse 5, we read, Then the prophet Jeremiah spoke to the prophet Hananiah, in the presence of the priests and all the people who were standing in the house of the everlasting. And this is one of those things where I'm like, okay, I have a firm belief that what is done in public should be conflicted about also in public. Yeah. And this is a like, Hananiah has been prophesying in public. And Jeremiah is like, these are not faithful, accurate, obedient prophecies and so is calling him and i out not in private in secret but saying like no this is not okay and i think about that when we challenge queer phobia and when we challenge racism and stuff that people say and like calling them out in a public way gives them the opportunity to realize what they've done learn and grow in public which is yeah. hard sure but also helps other people know how to do it too so I, I was thinking about that and like the ways that it models hard conversations, which we talked about in our own podcast episode, which we will link to in our episode description. Sure. And then in verse six, we read, and the prophet Jeremiah said, Amen. May the Lord do so. May the Lord fulfill the words that you have prophesied and bring back to this place from Babylon, the vessels of the house of the Lord and all the exiles. Okay. Now, if this were Jesus, I would think that Jesus was being sarcastic, but it's not Jesus. It's Jeremiah. <laughs> and being that it's Jeremiah, I tend to think that he's actually being honest here. Like he does want this to be mm. true. Like it would be awesome if there was peace and the vessels of the Lord were brought back from Babylon. And so were all the exiles like that. That would be great, dude. Like, mm -hmm. I hope you're right. <laughs> kind of thing. And imagine being a prophet and getting an attaboy from Jeremiah, of all people. Like, oh my goodness. Hooray for using your <laughs> reputation and power for good to build up another prophet here, Jeremiah. That That is good work. Like, okay, yes, in this particular case, Hananiah turns out to be wrong. But, like, if it had worked <laughs> out, G Jeremiah would have done a lovely job of, of building this guy up and encouraging, the, you know, I'm guessing the next generation. I'm just guessing here that Hananiah is younger. But it kind of, <laughs> in this, you know, mood of genuine encouragement and honesty and such, it reminds me of Elle Woods seeing her friend David in the movie Legally Blonde. He is failing at flirting with another woman, and she uses her reputation to help him out on the steps of the library, I think, in the movie. And mm -hmm. okay, 
yes, like I said, Hananiah turns out to be wrong in this case. We also don't actually know that David was all that great of a date, to be honest. So, Or like, that the people who were, like, blowing him off were... Worth it. You know, worth it. Or a good yeah. time. Yeah. And so yep. it's not necessarily about how it's going to work out. Sometimes you just have to try to encourage the next generation and build people up and hope that it works out. Because when in doubt, building mm -hmm. people up is better. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then in verse 8, we read, The prophets who preceded you and me from ancient times prophesied war, famine, and pestilence against many countries. And this very much makes me think of the studio execs and directors, most of whom are currently not working because of all the various strikes going on right now and should realize that it's time to just pay people mm -hmm. real money. Off topic. Mm -hmm. Never off topic. Yeah. Also, we don't have writers, so we're not strike breakers. Right. No scabs here. Yeah. But these studio execs and directors, also known as the folks with power in Hollywood, seem to think that all people want to watch are gritty, dark TV shows and movies where everyone is being horrible to each other. And I object to that concept. Like, I remember <laughs> being so disappointed when I watched the first Henry Cavill Superman movie because it didn't feel like Superman at all. It was so gray and tired mm. and just exhausting. And there wasn't that sense of hope and genuineness that Superman is supposed to bring to story. And I just, I want more escapism, please. Like, I am totally cool with a movie where literally the entire story is, like, I don't know, a couple decorating their house like it doesn't have to be complicated <laughs> like just give um, me a story with like some jokes and some warmth and kindness and you know in, in fandom we call this curtain fic and i will be happy i want more escapism please just stop giving me the really dark terrible you know artistic depictions of how the universe really is like no dude just give me a nice story that's why I love the Great British Baking Show. Exactly, yes. Because it's just light and fluffy and kind and tasty. Yeah. Except I always get hungry while watching it, so I have to I have mean, eaten right details, before. details. Yeah. Also, Vampirina is great, and apparently lots of people, adults included, love Bluey. I have heard good things, yes. So I enjoyed Vampirina, and I've heard good things about Bluey. I don't know. That's as far as I got. Yeah. you're right. Too much, too much. I have a book that I intend to read that I've heard good things about called Legends and Lattes, which is about a mm. coffee shop or owned by an orc, or maybe it's a half orc. I'm a little fuzzy on that part. And then there's a romance yeah. involved. And so that's on my list to read while I'm on vacation. I have heard of that one. I have a bunch of books that I want to read while I'm on vacation. We'll see yeah. how many I get through, but yeah. And then in verse nine, we read, as for the prophet who prophesies peace... When the word of that prophet comes true, then it will be known that the everlasting has truly sent the prophet. And this is, for me, a classic, just because you say it doesn't make it true, right? Just hmm. because a prophet says something doesn't make it true, right? Boromir, Denethor, <laughs> any of the men who thought that the ring perhaps would lead to peace for Gondor or anywhere. Yeah. Just because you say it doesn't make it true. Yeah. And remember, folks, as we've been reminded going through these verses, when you're looking at the word prophecy or prophesy, if you're looking at the word and there is an S toward the end of the word, it's prophesy because sigh starts with an S. And if you're looking at the word and it has a C near the end of the word, it's prophecy because you can see that the C is there. <laughs> I love it. That is actually super helpful. <laughs> Our second reading for this 
episode is Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 23. Paul encourages us not to be controlled by sin, but to embrace our freedom in God's grace by seeking righteousness. So one of the themes that comes up in this passage is the idea of sanctification, which is a big fancy church word that means to set apart, particularly thinking of like setting apart for a holy purpose or as a holy person. But also I was thinking about it in terms of the book, The Giver, and that Jonas is set apart to be the receiver of memory. So it's a, yeah, it's not that Jonas's thing is necessarily like better than everybody else, but like his is a particular thing that only he can do, presumably. And yeah, so set apart. Yeah. And then in verse 14, we read, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Okay, God, cosmically and eternally speaking, sure, absolutely. But on a day-to-day basis, like, we are still surrounded by sin. That is a thing that happens. Though, since every time that people have tried to make or imagined trying to make a world without sin, it's gone very badly, like, for example, in Mm. Serenity, the Firefly movie, maybe that (laughs) isn't quite as bad as it could be. Like, it could worse, now that I think about it. Yeah, it's true. It's true. A little bit of, like, the acknowledgement of the existence of sin and the ability to mess up, but then come back together is the trick. Again, those hard conversations. And then in verse 15, we read, what then? Should we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. I feel like this is a repetitive phrase because I feel like I just talked about this in our last episode. But also, just because you can doesn't mean you should. So just because you can sin doesn't mean you should try to. So, you know, don't make the ood your servants or enslave them. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Bad idea, humans. Also, just in general, slavery, bad. Speaking of which, in verse 19, the first part of verse 19, we read, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. And this passage in particular has so much slavery language of being enslaved to sin, of being enslaved to God, that sort of a thing. And A, it's a totally different context, so it needs unpacking. And maybe we will do that in a future episode, but we're not in a place to do it for this episode. But this verse helps me because it that it's a reminder that all of the language in scripture but particularly in this passage, is human terms. Is Paul trying to use human terms to get a point across? Because the reality of our obedience to God, our relationship with God, exists beyond the limited terms that we as humans know or use. Absolutely. Kind of like in Doctor Who, when the TARDIS helps the presumably smarter aliens to communicate with humans or just people with different languages to communicate with each other or like the arrival which is based on a short story that is phenomenal and i love the short story where the aliens language is so different from us that we learn their language and we learn to communicate on their terms and it actually like shifts how those humans who learn it think and experience the world yeah absolutely 
And then in verse 21, we read, So what advantage did you then get from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. Okay, so that last part is a little bit more depressing than where I'm going with this. But <laughs> this did still very much remind me of the bit in the later part of Little Women, where Joe has moved out of the house to the city, and she started writing stories to make her living. And she's discovered that writing what she thinks of and regularly calls trash is what makes her the most money. She calls the stuff trash because it is both mm -hmm. bad quality compared to what she's capable of writing, and also it shares messages that she doesn't agree with. She's not proud mm -hmm. of it. She doesn't like doing it, and she feels bad about doing it, but also it makes her actual money she can live on. And she struggles with this for a decent chunk of the book until she is able to get better offers to write things that she actually likes and is proud of. And so this is something that a lot of us face in a possible conflict. Yeah. Yeah. That's what happens in Nope. Kind of, but not even less so that where there's a director that they're trying to get to work with them for free. And he's like, well, I do the like really heavy paying work so that I can also do the like stuff I want to do on my own time. Yeah. So he, he does the big Hollywood blockbusters so that he can also do small projects. Cool. Sure. And then our gospel reading for this episode is from Matthew chapter 10 verses 40 through 42. Jesus reminds us that anyone who welcomes those sent out in his name are also welcoming him and therefore God. So one of the themes in this passage is welcome. I did not count, but I would be interested to count how many times that word comes up in hmm. three verses because a it's a lot. And it reminded me of in Ember in the Ashes, Laya at the very beginning is trying to find the resistance because she needs help finding and saving her brother, Darren. And the resistance at first is resistant to helping her. And she actually has to invoke Izat in order for them to welcome her when in reality, they should have been living by Izat and welcoming and supporting and helping her from the start. She shouldn't have had to invoke it them to support her yeah but it's that like welcoming like bringing in and supporting and caring for and protecting and like yeah showing up for each other that yeah is important and then in verse 40 we read jesus says whoever welcomes you welcomes me and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me and that sentence just felt like one of those if then statements in math class from high school math where like I actually really liked figuring them out and like solving them because I like logic problems a lot. But like, if this, then this, if this, then this, if this, then this, and then it gives you like this. So, and then you have to say what the, yeah, solve the thing. Yeah, they can be fun. Mm -hmm. And I suppose sort of related, but definitely different from that. In verse 41, we read, Whoever welcomes a prophet in the name of a prophet will receive a prophet's reward, and whoever welcomes a righteous person in the name of a righteous person will receive the reward of the righteous. But as I got to thinking Try about this... Try saying that five times fast. Yeah, no. As I got to thinking about this, if you welcome a righteous person in the name of a prophet, what happens? Or what if you welcome a prophet in the name mm. of a righteous person? Or presumably there are more complicated examples of this getting more Or what if the righteous person is a prophet. Yeah, exactly. And 
as this gets more complicated, I start thinking of it in terms of, I don't know if you all watch the TV show Price is Right, but they had a mm-hmm. game on it called mm-hmm. Plinko, and mm-hmm. it involved a ball started at the top of a board with a bunch of bars on it and bounced back and forth between a lot of the bars as it worked mm-hmm. its way down, and there was a lot of bouncing, and eventually it worked its way into one of the slots at the bottom of the board. And this kind of makes me think of that because you're sort of bouncing back and forth between all the different options until you finally wind up at the right reward you're going to get and this just sounds unnecessarily complicated to me jesus can we make this one of those rules that you know the answer is a little more simple than that like yes or no or good or bad i just yeah i love that although plinko is fun it is yeah yeah And then in the first half of verse 42, we read, And whoever gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones in the name of a disciple. And based on the pattern that has been established in Kay's verse in particular, the little one is then a disciple, which is where the name Christians comes from because it's like little Christs. But I really love the the fondness in calling people little one from God or from Jesus, right? Like I'm not talking about humans infantilizing other adult humans or that sort of thing, but like to have God think of me as like a little one. Very occasionally somebody can pull that off and not have it be infantilizing. Like I remember watching Phantom Menace and I don't hate that movie nearly as much as some people do. And Liam Neeson's (laughs) character, Qui-Gon, refers to a variety of very short people as little one, but it's with so much like respect in his voice that you can tell he's not being infantilizing about it. (laughs) And especially as one of them, you know, turns out to be a queen, so it works out. But, you know, he's just... I thought you were going to say Yoda. And that's going to be like... (laughs) You know, I don't know if he does that to Yoda, but I would love to see a copy of that. Yeah, absolutely. But he's just, several times in the movie, it just feels like he's acknowledging the height difference that exists that is just really stark already. So Mm. it it didn't especially bother me. But I suppose I'm tall, so I might not be the best judge. (laughs) That's fair. Yes. And then this is one of those rare times when we had three verses, but we still managed to not step on each other's feet, as it were, because I took the second half of verse 42, which is, truly, I tell you, none of these will lose their reward. That is the people who gave a cup of cold water to the child. And to a little one. To the little one, yes. So I suppose they could have just been short. So this is as opposed to what often happens when you win the lottery, which, depending on your level-headedness and amount of self-control, could go very wrong indeed. There are a number of stories of terrible things happening to lottery winners, and it might even depend not on your own level-headedness or self-control, but the level-headedness or self-control of the people who tell that you won. Folks have actually won the lottery and then been murdered by acquaintances or family members for the money. One case is a man named Abraham Shakespeare from Florida. He has a whole Wikipedia article about his story. He won the lottery and then a few years later was murdered by an acquaintance for the money so that she would retain rights over. Yeah. That's bad. Yeah. Murder bad. Absolutely. Murder very bad. Also, Abraham Shakespeare is a great. Right. I know. I was like, that's a name. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And now for our most disobedient segment. (laughs) I mean, Muppets aren't good at that. That's fair. (laughs) Yeah. Let's make a Muppets musical. 
Okay, who are you casting? You know, I'm not really interested in talking about Obedient Muppets because I feel like we've talked about that fairly recently, despite the fact that this is this week's deep dive. But yeah. instead, I think I'd like to talk about the most welcoming Muppets. And really, most of the Muppets are fairly welcoming. They just have different ways mm -hmm. of going about being welcoming. Like, Kermit is, you know, warm and friendly. Fozzie Bear will tell you a joke and make sure that you're comfortable. Rolf will play you music. And Miss Piggy will absolutely beat the living crap out of anyone who says a bad word to you or to her or to Kermie or to many other But <laughs> by golly, <laughs> you will be welcome. And I appreciate that about them. It's so many of them are so good at being welcome. I love that. I actually was thinking of Big Bird. I'm just on the like a super huge sesame kick. Sure. I was thinking Big Bird was the first person that came to mind for me as someone that would be welcoming. Absolutely. Because I think Big Bird works really hard to be a welcoming presence Absolutely. to everyone that Big Bird encounters. Big um, Bird was the only one who welcomes Snuffleupagus because Big Bird was the only one who knew Snuffleupagus was actually there. It's true. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Catch us next time when we'll discuss nerdery connections to the scripture readings for the sixth Sunday after Pentecost. This podcast has been produced by us, Kay Roloff and Emily Ewing. For more fun, check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Nerds at Church, or contact us at nerdsatchurch at gmail.com. Also, if you like what you've heard, rate us or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever you catch your podcasts. If you want access to our uncut guest episodes and interviews, live Q&As, and more, Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nerds at church. Starting at just $5, it's cheaper than obeying the law? It's cheaper than having to build an ark to obey God. <laughs> it's cheaper on your spirit than murdering someone who just won the lottery. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> also probably it's cheaper on cheaper than lots of Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Okay, sure. Also, let us know on Facebook or Twitter who you would cast for Let's Make a Muppets Musical for this episode. As the ancient Christian said, Pox Fobiscum. Fobiscum.